All right, well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Nahum for the last time. Nahum chapter 3. You can find it on page 783 in a Blue Pew Bible. And I want to start with a little Bible trivia that you can take from here and impress all your friends this week. All right. There are two books of the Bible that end with a question. One of them, as we'll see in a moment, is this little book of Nahum. And the other is the book of Jonah. The two books of the Bible that end with a question. And that literary connection is not just a literary connection, but as we set out to finish Nahum, we're going to dig further into the fact that Nahum is essentially a sequel to the book of Jonah. And as is often the case, the sequel is far less known and far less popular than the original. Right? Everybody knows Jonah. Nobody knows Nahum. But the reason and the heart behind a sequel is to carry forward a story. Right? A story where the audience says, you know what, there's more here to unpack. I'm not done with this yet. We need more. And so um, let's just talk about the best movie sequel of all time. All right, we all know what it is, but let's just say it. It's Toy Story 2, okay? Uh, we all know. And Toy Story 1 came out in the mid-90s when I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And it was this kind of real shift and of going from kind of these Disney movies to now this different level of animation, uh, films by Pixar, and you had a movie about toys. And I remember as a 78-year-old, there was like, what am I watching right now? I need more of this. I was the target demographic for Toy Story, and I still am. Um, and so you get to the end of Toy Story 1, and you go, I need more. Like, like that story cannot end there. I need more. And I feel like I still remember when the news came out that a sequel would be released. And it would be released on Thanksgiving Eve, 1999. I mean, what a fall for me in 1999. The Yankees win the World Series. And then Toy Story 2 comes out. All right? Best fall ever. Um, and you see just the characters, the plot, the level of affection of just wanting more. And then there was a third, and then there was a fourth, and I don't know how many there are now. Now, in a sense, the whole Old Testament creates that desire in those who read it. The Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. And an ending leading to a fulfillment, leading to Jesus Christ. But, but in, even in the, in the more narrow sense, Jonah has one of the more bizarre endings in the Bible. And you get to the end of Jonah, and you go, it, it can't actually end like that, can it? Um, as a reminder, Jonah was a prophet called by God to go preach to the city of Nineveh, the wicked city of Nineveh, to share the love of God, to warn them of judgment that would come, and to call them to repentance. And Jonah fled from that call, not because he was afraid of Nineveh, but because he was afraid God would save even a city like Nineveh. He didn't think they were deserving. Nineveh needed justice, not grace. So God, as the story goes and is very well known, dramatically brings Jonah back and tells him a second time to go to Nineveh. And this time Jonah goes. And Jonah 3 says that the people of Nineveh believed God. And there was a citywide revival from the king on down. And, and so many people, when they think about the book of Jonah, they, they think it ends there, right? It ends there in their minds. Nineveh repented, Jonah obeyed, end of story. That's chapter 3, though. There's a chapter 4 in Jonah. In chapter 4, we see a Jonah who is angry. He's angry at God because of God's compassion for Nineveh. How could he do that? How could he save them? 
And so in chapter 4, God raises up this plant to give Jonah as uh, shade as he is overlooking uh, the city from the mountain, and he's in the sun. So uh, God gives him this shade, and then the next day the plant dies, and Jonah curses the plant that God put there in the first place. And then here's the ending of Jonah. And it'll be up on the screen, Jonah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And here's the question. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? End. Now, 100 years later, enter the sequel. Generations have passed. Those who have trusted the Lord in Nineveh passed, and the city fell back into its wicked ways. Now it's far more powerful and brutal than they were even to begin with. And so now Nahum prophesies their downfall. Nahum declares the judgment that will come upon them this time. And the end of Nahum reads far different than Jonah. But it also ends with a question. And so beyond just, again, a literary connection, there is a theological connection between the two that gets traced through. All right, I want to kind of just try to connect the dots for us this morning as we finish this series. That God is not either gracious or just, like he's one or the other. He's not either gracious towards sinners or just towards sin. He is gracious and just. Jonah and Nahum. And in the first week of our series, uh, going through this book, we looked at God's revelation of his own character in Exodus 34, which gets quoted in both Jonah and Nahum, as it does in dozens of other places in the Bible. And in Exodus 34, Moses was at the top of Mount Sinai. And we read in verses 6 and 7, and this will also be on the screen. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Look, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Jonah and Nahum together reveal the full picture of God's character and God's mission. If Jonah teaches us that the Lord is merciful and gracious, then Nahum teaches us that he will by no means clear the guilty. And one is not more true than the other. They are both to be held together. And so now, this final passage in Nahum, week five in our series, is in many ways a continuation of last week's message where God declares his victory over evil. He gives his final words of judgment upon Nineveh. The phrase we saw last week twice was, I am against you. And these final words now are to be read, I think, as to be felt more than explained. And I'll explain that after we read them. But they are purposely written in a poetic prose so that you would feel the weight of them. And it ends with a question. So let's go to our Bibles, chapter 3. We're picking up at verse 8, where we left off last week, and we're going to take it to the end. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. 
If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies, and fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the day. Clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not, your unce- has not come your unceasing evil. All right. As we finish Nahum, I want to approach it a bit differently, intentionally. Uh, for four weeks, we've already dug deep into the historical context of this book. We've seen the various roads from Nahum to the cross. And we could have finished the series last week. Because these verses, again, are a continuation of that final words of judgment that God gave to Nineveh that we looked at last week. But I purposefully plan to do an extra week so that we can have a time of reflection. This morning, I want us to see how the message of and the endings of both Jonah and Nahum can shape us and the way we see ourselves, not only as individual believers, but as a church that is carrying out God's calling upon our lives. That that we are a local church in North Jersey in 2023, and we're seeking to glorify God by making disciples who know Jesus Christ and, and make him known the heartbeat of who we are and what we're trying to do. And that would be the vision if I was pastoring a church in 10th century Europe, uh, 19th century Africa, or 21st century America. That vision would stand because that's the vision that the Bible puts forth. But here's the thing. The way every church in every place and time period, the way they carry out that vision is dependent on context. And where we are now is not a pre-Christian context We are increasingly in a post-Christian world, a post-Christian context, and that needs to matter. And so I want to bring in a book that, talk about a book that was published earlier this year that I finished this fall by Jim Davis and Michael Graham. And the book was called The Great De-Churching. The Great De-Churching. And it provided uh, in-depth studies over a course of a couple of years, surveys, analytics, to have data that backs up a conclusion that everyone kind of saw and felt, but now has some numbers to it. And it came up with this clear conclusion, that church attendance has seen a bigger shift in the last 25 years than the rest of American history combined. And so a couple quotes from the book, uh, Davis writes that the size, pace, and scope of de-churching in America is at such historic levels that there is no better phrase to describe this phenomenon than the great de-churching. And for the purpose of their study, Someone is designated as being de-churched if they used to go to church at least once a month and now go to church less than once a year on average. Used to go at least once a month, now goes less than once a year. And with that, next quote, about 40 million adults in America today used to go to church but no longer do. 
which accounts for around 16% of our adult population. 16%, 40 million adults are considered de-churched, where we are doing ministry. And there's obviously a ton of information in the book as to the causes. There's no one cause. There's a whole bunch of reasons knowing that uh, these facts, also, these uh, numbers also include those who left the Catholic Church and left mainline denominational churches. So it's not just, you know, churches that are uh, you know, theologically conservative or um, uh, that includes all of you know, Catholic, Orthodox, mainline Protestant. Um, I, I say this and I know that you sitting here, some of you, this is your story. That you were designated as someone who is de-churched and that God has drawn you back. Or maybe you're still kind of wrestling through that, what that means. I know for many of us, I would say most of us, have somebody close to us in our lives who is de-churched. This is not just facts on a page, not just a study or analytics. This is personal. But then the overarching concern at a society level that the book puts forward is that when the people of God and the impact of the church have a diminished role in society, what you begin to see is the net result of de-churching leads to diminished human flourishing, diminished connectivity in society, a diminished cohesiveness and overall peace in the land, which what have we experienced in the last 25 years, if not that? And the problem is not just that, and this is important, the problem is not that just people got selfish and wanted to follow their own desires so left church. That's maybe part of the story, but that's not the only part, maybe not even the primary part we should be concerned about. The primary part that we should be concerned about is that the vision of the church got distorted and left the people. And people got turned off by it, by the shallowness of it, by the, the, the misconstrued emphasis on things that they should not be emphasizing. So it's not just that people left the church. I think in many ways, the church left the people. So that is the concern. But then the hope, and the whole back of the half of the book is, there's hope here. The surprising hope that first showed up in the data is that the majority, 60 to 70% of those who were uh, interviewed who are designated de-churched have said that they still cling to some desire for faith in God and are willing to return to church and to faith if they're compelled by it and in some ways if they're just asked to. And so Davis says that if the, whole church, if the church as a whole leans into the ways that the church can recapture its vision and its vision and its holistic gospel in a way that will over time uh, and over the next coming decades not only reach the unchurched in our land, but the 16 million, no, 16%, 40 million de-churched and all of the families that they're beginning to now have or they already do have. So now the question for us, and I'm, if you're asking like where are we going with this, all right, the question is How? How? And Davis made the case that churches will be effective in reaching the de-churched in that they recapture the ability to be both confessional and missional and not choosing one at the expense of the other. So let's do it this way. Let's say that there are two churches in Ridgewood. One is called Grace Confessional Church and another is called Grace Missional Church. And I try to give them you know, a graphic to kind of help this, just kind of maybe, maybe seeing it will help. Grace Confessional Church is a bedrock of theological teaching and preaching. They have a high view of membership and discipleship, and they're clear in their doctrine and what they stand for unapologetically. They have lots of missions partners overseas, but they struggle to be missional in their own region. Very little thought is given to nonbelievers around them or the community they're located in. And they're faithful to teaching the Bible, but missing the hearts of the lost. Grace Confessional Church loves content over context, loves discipleship over evangelism. They are confessional at the expense of mission. 
You could put it this way. They love Nahum over Jonah. And then down the road, you have Grace Missional Church. And that's a church that focuses entirely on reaching the lost. And their music and their style of preaching are emotionally moving and engaging. They avoid deep theological topics or anything that would ever be seen as controversial in the culture because they don't want to make people uncomfortable or turn people off. They want to attract. There's not really a focus on discipleship, but there's a high emphasis on training people for evangelism, making their presence known in the community as a marketing tool to get people in their building. And once people are in their building, the majority of their time and their money is spent on how to make the Sunday experience in such a way that will get decisions for Christ. Grace Missional Church loves context over content. Evangelism at the expense of discipleship. Mission at the expense of confession. You could say they love Jonah over Nahum. And so every church where they're located, especially in our context, need to be honest about ourselves. Has our church veered too far in one direction or the other? Certain churches need to add mission to their confession. Others need to add confession to their mission. Because love flourishes at the intersection of both. And they're not two opposing ideas, just like God is not either gracious or just. But they are two truths that scripture holds together in tension. It is Jonah and Nahum together. And so here's how I want to finish. And we're going to be going fast and kind of broad strokes. But I just, again, I want to put something in your mind to reflect on in your life and as part of this church. If you're not part of this church, maybe wherever church you are a part of or will be a part of, to be to be thinking about these things. I think the story of Nineveh, tucked away in these two Old Testament prophetic books, can help us keep the two together. That we would not be Grace Missional Church or Grace Confessional Church, but that we would be Grace Church, both missional and confessional. So we're going to start with three things that Nineveh shows us, or these books show us about being missional. Uh, Number one, God's heart for the lost God's heart for the lost. The the judgment upon Nineveh was not an eager God who loves to punish, uh, but the final justice of God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and who desires all to come to know him. Right? That's the message of Jonah. That's the mission of Jonah. And that book shows us that our utmost desire for people in this world is not for them to start acting a certain way. You got to act this way. You got to start talking this way. You got to start voting this way. It's not our utmost desire for them. Our utmost desire for our children is not that they would just grow up to be nice. We want nice kids who are well-rounded, good at, 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 at a bunch of different things. Get, get a solid college resume. Go to that school. Get a stable career. Get a spouse, two kids, and a dog. And that's our aim for them. It's not our utmost desire. Our utmost desire, if we were to have a heart for the lost, is that they would know Jesus. I mean, just top of the list bottom of the foundation, however you want to put it, they would know Jesus and that we would love them enough to show them Jesus in the way that we live and speak of Jesus' impact in our lives and how he can transform their hearts and, and, and he'll transform their actions and he'll transform their behavior and their desires. And so in this way, what I want for us at Grace Church is that we would be terrible at compartmentalizing. Here's what I mean, that we would be terrible of thinking one way, acting one way, talking one way here amongst our people, but then out in the world, we're somebody totally different. And you can't recognize the two at work, at your school, at your neighborhood. I pray that we'd be terrible at compartmentalizing, that our heart is for the lost, and that we consistently want what's best for people that God has placed in our life, and what's best for them, both the unchurched and the de-churched, 
is that they would know Jesus. And if we say what we believe, what we believe, if we affirm the creed together every single week, if we actually believe what we say, then we are willing to show them Jesus even when it's costly for us, even if it's hard for us. And it will be costly for you, and it will be hard for you because we're in a post-Christian world. And so we as individuals and as a church want to think deeply, first and foremost, about how we can show this world Jesus in the way that uh, the things that we prioritize, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, that we have a heart for the lost, and that this world would know. We, we can't control their reaction, but this world would know through their interaction with us that there is no such thing as being too far gone. Is it possible that the people in your life who are unchurched or dechurched are not are not doing that because of just purely out of their own rebellion or because they have no desire or because they don't want to, but because they no, no longer think they can. They think their moment has passed. And, and when they get those little feelings and those convictions and desire, they think, I can't go back there. They wouldn't have me back there. I am too far gone. Let us tell them that there is more grace in God than there is sin in them. Do they know that? Do they know it? That's number one, missional church. Number two, if we're going to be a missional church, we're going to be pursuing God's desire for mercy and justice. Pursuing God's desire for mercy and justice. A missional church has a special heart for helping those in need, for defending the marginalized, for helping the oppressed, for caring for the body and not just for the soul. And the heart of that mission is mercy and justice because at the heart of our confession is a God who is merciful and who sought justice for us in Christ. Where as a church and as individuals, we're actively looking to serve the least of these. Not for optics, not to say, look at Grace Church and how involved we are and how loving we are. Not so it makes us look good in the community, but so that it makes God look like God in the community. One of the reasons God wanted to reach Nineveh through Jonah is so that the oppressor would be transformed. You know what would happen if that happened? All the oppressed nations that they were oppressing would be freed. That when the city is revived and the oppressor is revived, those who are oppressed go free. And so being missional is not just learning how to share your faith at work, although that can be very good, but it means caring about what God cares about. Caring for lost, broken people. Caring for broken bodies. Caring for those who are marginalized. Going towards those who are in need and not hiding from them. And in our day, I think that's not just helping and providing aid, but advocating for them. Where are we advocating for them? Um, you know, Tim Keller, now the late Tim Keller, has defined carrying out mercy and justice as, quote, disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. Maybe you need that simplicity. What is justice? What is to do justice in your life? It is to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. Where are you doing that? Church, where are we doing that? Deploying our time and our treasure, our talent for uplifting others. We got to keep going. Broad strokes. Number three, missional church. Living within God's promise to return. To be missional is to live within God's promise to return. Um, here's what I mean by that. The, the book of Jonah has a sense of urgency to it when you read it. There's a sense of urgency of God's call to Jonah and Jonah's call to Nineveh. Uh, 
And, and we want a church, we want to be a church that has a sense of urgency baked within it. On one hand, we trust in the slow work of God. We trust in the sovereignty of God over all things, which we'll get to in a moment. But on the other hand, we know time is limited. We are all limited. And the return of Christ is imminent. And it could happen at any time. And so we commit to be a missional church that's not going to waste the opportunities we are given now. Jonah was sent to Nineveh because the Lord told them he's going to carry out his righteous justice if they did not repent. That creates urgency. That creates a sense of angst, even if internally, of we, we got to move on this. we got to move in our prayers. we got to move in our actions. we got to move in the way we disciple in our homes. That there's a sense of urgency baked into the life of a believer. Not rushed, but urgent. Because then the book of Nahum, which we'll see, shows us that there's a day coming when that justice will be carried out. And it's coming for us all. So as a church, we know that there will be a day when the mission will be no more. The mission will be over. That day will come. And then there will be a lifetime, an eternity of worship and perfect community. Man, I long for that. No sin. No, no, no brokenness. No relational strife. No tension. No hurt feelings. No painful bodies. We will all be united as the family of God. There will be love with no boundaries. It's going to be glorious. And you know what? We're not there yet. And so we commit to pour ourselves out. We commit to go to, we commit to, go to bed tired, if you know what I mean. Because you lived your life with an urgency. And to wake up and commit to the, uh, to commit to the mission of living for the glory of God in a broken world once again. Knowing he will sustain us to the end. And he'll give you just enough that you need to carry out your urgent calling. And so we want to be a church that is missional. But that's not all, because we don't lose sight of Nahum when we read Jonah. We spotlight the confession of God, a right confession of who he is and all of his character, which leads to the three aspects of a confessional church that we want to be. And I keep saying it. I know I'm almost being too brief, but I just want us to give us something to reflect on. What's Nahum tell us about the confession of God? Starting with number one. We've got three more here. Number one. God is sovereign over all. And I don't want to say this like sometimes we say it in kind of a vague way, like some vague God is in control way. Nahum doesn't allow us to do that. But to say God is sovereign in a way that affirms that all powers, all kingdoms, all kings, and all individuals are subject to his rule and his reign. And in this final exhortation to Nineveh, God brings up another city. Did you see that? If you're, if name three is still open. Look at verse 8. He all of a sudden invokes another city. He says, are you better than Thebes? Thebes was another powerful ancient metropolis in the Nile Valley in modern-day Egypt and Sudan. And it was known for its strong defenses because it was, uh, it was banked by the Nile on one end, and then it was surrounded by allied nations on the other end, which is also listed in Nahum 3. But around 660 B.C., it fell. The city was conquered. And that's around when Nahum was writing this book and about 50 years before Nineveh would fall. So God is saying to Nineveh, are you better than Thebes? Are you more well defended than them? If they fell, you'll fall too. That is the sovereignty of God in all his assurance knowing if they fell, you'll fall too. So, as a church today that is confessional, we understand that this book is not just a history lesson about Nineveh. You learned probably way more about Nineveh in the last five weeks than you ever cared to know. But that's not the point. 
The point is that it falls in a long-running theme that God brings down the proud and God raises up the humble. And those who arrogantly see themselves as being able to act however they want, to live however they want, to do what just feels right, to gain as much power or notoriety by any means necessary because you can, whether that's empires, cities, or individuals, God's sovereignty says all of them will fall. And as a church, we confess that God is sovereign. We don't shy away from that because that's an uncomfortable message for a world to hear. So let's leave that off so we can reach them. It's not our confession. Our confession is that Jesus is Lord. And all who see themselves as lifting themselves up will be brought down in due time. Which leads to number two. God will carry out justice. This is much has been clear in the last four weeks in Nahum. God will carry out justice. Nahum revealed to us that the Lord is rightly jealous for his creation and for carrying out his justice against those who rebel against him and threaten the flourishing of his people. There's no such thing as getting away with it in the eyes of God. And his justice is more powerful and it's more terrible than anything in this world. And that does not make God a monster. That makes him a strong protector. It's the reason why Martin Luther, 500 years ago, based on Nahum 1 verse 7, wrote the song we just sung again this morning like we did the first week. A mighty fortress is our God. And churches have been singing that for 500 years. Why? In part, the book of Nahum. That our God will carry out justice. He is our mighty fortress. Uh, and we see that in the ending words of this book, that, that uh, it details the failure of three things. The army, the economy, and the leadership. So real quickly, all efforts to defend will be lost when God carries out his justice. Look at verse 12. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. The failure of the army. Then, verse 16, the failure of the economy. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. And then the failure of its leadership. Verse 17. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. No matter how powerful your empire is, your army fails, your economy fails, your leaders run away. And it will all come crashing down. And it happened because God carried out his justice. He was slow to anger, you see. But he will by no means clear the guilty. And he is compelled to punish evil, to expose it and punish it. And so the obvious message that comes out of the book of Nahum is this. If Nineveh and the powerful Assyrian Empire can't escape God's justice, if Thebes will even fall, who can stand? Who can withstand his justice? And the core issue with Nineveh was not its power or its army or its economy. It was a city that was filled with hearts that sinned against him. The issue was sin. The issue was choosing their way over God's way. The issue was choosing their glory over his. And in that way, this is not a history lesson about Nineveh. In that way, we see and feel Nineveh in each of our own hearts. We have to sit in the agony of that. You have to sit in the agony of that, of knowing you've chosen your own way, 
and the reality that you can experience all the power in this world, all the prestige, all the wealth, but time keeps ticking for all of us. And eventually, that check is going to come due. Which leads to number three. A confessional church says God's grace is the only way. It is the only way. The book of Nahum is uncomfortable to preach through. I've appreciated your guys' willingness to go through it and how much you have enjoyed it. But I've also know it's been uncomfortable to go through. It's especially uncomfortable for those who oppose God. But when you sit in the agony of that, you see it's a source of comfort for those who draw near to him. And I'll say for the last time, like I've said every week, what does the name Nahum mean in Hebrew? Comfort. This is meant to comfort you. And to be confessional is to say that God doesn't save you just from uh, the enemy, like you know, the end of a thriller movie. He doesn't save you back from somebody who duped you. That first and foremost, the gospel says that he saves you from his own wrath and justice. That you were due. That is rightly owed to those who rebel against him. And the way he does it is that he sacrifices himself. The way he does it is by sacrificing himself and sending his eternal son, Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus can stand before the Father and be our mighty fortress when his justice strikes. Only he can be in the place where we seek refuge in the torrent flood. And the gospel teaches that he is our only hope. Not a hope to consider. Our only hope. And our only hope is to turn from our rebellion and take refuge in his death on the cross in our place. God didn't overlook justice. He placed justice on someone else on your behalf. And so in this way, Jonah and Nahum together both help us see that in Jesus in his mission and in his character, the sovereign God is for us. He is not against you. He is for you. And he has conquered the enemy, and he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. And no one, the Bible says, no one comes to the Father except through him. This is our confession. And so digging into these books will grow our appreciation, first and foremost, for Jesus not just in your head, sitting in the pew, connecting historical facts about the Bible, but in a way that reaches into the depths of your heart, that nothing will move you. Nothing will put that lump in your throat or tears in your eyes than considering the love of Jesus and the love he has for you. And as we finish with Paul, I think, summing up Jonah and Nahum, with these words in Ephesians chapter 2. They'll be on the screen. Let it soak over you. Let it fall afresh. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the confidence of Jonah and Nahum, not one or the other, but both. And if we lived as a church, not as the confessional church or the missional church, but as the church that is committed to both compassion and mission, conviction and confession, we will be following in the footsteps of our Savior who came in grace and truth 
And church, God will be glorified. By his grace, the unchurched will be reached. And by his grace, even more, the de-churched will come back. Let it be our calling until the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you that over the last five weeks, we read every single word in the book of Nahum. And your word went out, Lord, and I pray that it would not return void. That it would encourage those who need to be encouraged and assured in their faith, Lord, that your grace is enough. That it would be, bring conviction, to Lord, to those who need to be convicted, to those who think that they are enough and they can do enough, Lord. I pray that you would allow them to see and feel the agony of, of that lie. Not just to feel guilt or shame, Lord, but to bring them on a path that leads to your grace, Lord. Draw near to yourself. And Father, we pray for the 40 million de-churched in our country, many of which are family members and friends. Father, let us be committed to living out your whole gospel, committing to your whole character, strong in our confession, passionate in our mission, and let it be for your glory that Grace Church plays a part in this story of bringing them back. And it's your name we pray. Amen.